Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Trans Regret Snoopy Presents the Bible. Alexandria Grace Olson is here with me again today. We are going to be talking uh, in a continuation of our episode about death. Today, we're going to be talking about angels and heaven. And uh, you'll forgive me in advance if we don't get to all the material and we have another uh, iteration, another installment of this series later on um but there's just too much to talk about and i love having having alexandria on the show so welcome again thanks for joining me thank you so much for having me i am i am excited to continue this um i'm a big fan of angels huge fan want to be one eventually as i mentioned um <laughs> and and so uh, i'm excited to dive into this and and heaven in general i uh, i appreciate that after the last episode which almost really made it sound like we were glorifying death at some times, which the Bible kind of does a little bit, but like it, it's, there's nuance to it. There's nuance to it. I'm glad that now we are on this upswing of angels and heaven. Um, I have been in mixed emotions about death for the past few weeks uh, because I, you know, right after we finished recording that last episode, um, I started approaching the, uh, fourth anniversary of my stepdad's passing and so it, it, it is it is interesting to have and it's fun to have these conflicting feelings about death uh and it's it's great one minute and then it's awful the next minute and um you know i guess i guess the point that i'm adding is that it, as as beautiful as we made it sound i i don't want to come off as like i love death or like death is like a completely harmless thing because it does it it hurts sometimes it hurts quite often yeah and then, we're always then, in this push and pull exactly between our our like human feeling of loss and then this belief that we have as christians in eternity and understanding that death is not the end for us and in our and for our souls but it is the end for like our earthly memories and 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 that's really really tough. Yeah, I think I ended the episode by saying "Don't kill yourself, please," which I think is the best message one can relay to anyone. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, and and yes, and now we get to focus on the 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 lighter part of death and the beautiful after parts uh, that comes with death, and the you know the part the part that we can find comfort in when we have a loved one pass. Um. Angels uh, and heaven occupy a special place in uh, in our theologies. I think each one of us forms a different version of of angels and heaven, just kind of like we think of a different version of death. I think all of us have a different idea of, of what it seems like and what it feels like and what it is. But angels are something that are described throughout the Bible in different places in very different ways. And heaven is something that's described... Uh, almost nowhere in the Bible and in in any kind of specific sense. And yet so many people who are Christians uh, spend a lot of their time, if not all of their time, when they're thinking about God and when they are practicing their beliefs or when they're in church or when they're talking about 
when they're talking about religion, they're talking about heaven. They're talking about that um, being the end goal to all of this, to everything that we're doing. Anything that we do here is just in the service of us winding up in heaven. And that obviously is problematic because while the kingdom of heaven is a phrase that gets bandied about in the New Testament quite a bit, it's not really, I think, what we're talking about when we talk about heaven. No, yeah, that is, I, I, I do agree with that. There is this weird dichotomy where heaven is kind of like the big selling point in a lot of Christ Christianity, and especially when when you are from an evangelical tradition and a part a big part of your beliefs are spreading the gospel and getting people quote unquote saved which i can talk about how awful that concept is later uh but um you know it it is the whole point when they dress it up this way is that it's fire insurance almost you you have to follow <laughs> this and then you get the wonderful paradise in the end and you don't get the bad flame flamey you know fiery place but neither of those places are really described that much. And it is, it's, it's a very secondary point, especially with Jesus. He like barely talks about heaven as a concept. I think we mentioned this last episode. It was, it was, he was, his message was a lot more material than we often remember. And mm. um, so it's, it's, it's beautiful that we've built such a big thing out of this concept. That's hardly ever really talked about in scripture. Mm-hmm. The reason why angels are included in this conversation is because um, our concept as human beings is uh, when someone dies, they either go to uh, nowhere or they go to a good place or they go to a bad place, to to use the sort of common phrase that a lot of people are used to saying now. But uh, there's really only one class of being that can occupy a physical space in both of those places. Um, that would be angels. Angels are heavenly beings who then visit Earth, who have a physical presence on Earth, however that looks, and it looks a lot of different ways. So angels belong in this conversation, but it's also important to know that like, the belief about angels is, again, really varied, and their purpose in Scripture is varied, and uh, what they are sent to do is typically to relay a message. They're usually messengers more than anything. Um, they're not like movies uh, would indicate. They're not there to um, save us from despair or, or turmoil or, or protect us in times of danger. Um, as comforting of a thought as that might be, that's not really scriptural. They're typically going from heaven to earth to say, hey, I've got a message from God. You need to listen. Uh, it's just as important as someone watching over our shoulder and like stopping us from walking across the street when a bus is coming. Right. But it is, you know, it's, it's the more solid scriptural understanding of what we have as angels. So we have a lot of notes just like we did during our first episode about death. And so I want to get through as much of it as we possibly can, but um, this may again spill over into uh, yet another part of this series, because frankly, we could do a whole other podcast about this. This could just be its own show, just every single episode about death, angels, or heaven. Yeah, and um, I, even though they their primary service is acting as a messenger, there are still a few examples occasionally uh, 
of God sending uh, angels to be a, a servant or a helper to those he deemed uh, righteous and to help them accomplish some sort of goal on earth. Uh, that's where the phrase, I will send my angel before you is very common. Um, but you really only see that for like big things. They're not, it's, I don't know. I feel like you don't see as many instances of like, you know, an angel stopping you from like stepping into a manhole. I don't know, like an open, an mm-hmm. open, open sewer. Uh, yeah. For, for a cartoonish example. Like there's no, there's not, there's not these like everyday things and i love the idea of a guardian angel but i just wonder i wonder where that comes from and i wonder i wonder how true it is at the end of the day uh you know i do love yeah. the idea but um yeah it is it is interesting they they seem more disinterested in human affairs than we sometimes think that they are <laughs> well humans think they're very important so of course oh, yeah we, no, we would think that they're just here to be our servants they're just here to like you know wait on us and protect us and uh, anywho, so let's go to angels first. Um, we have a note. Uh, our first note in this is let's talk about the word angel. Like the word angel itself is derived from a Greek translation of messenger in Hebrew. The 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 root word angelos and angelos uh, angels as a whole refers to as a host or literally an army. We hear God referred to as the Lord of hosts. Um, that's really common in the Psalms, but it's elsewhere too. And the Lord of hosts is like God and God's heavenly army of angels. So this is where it's easy to, to go start heading in the wrong direction already, right? Because we think of angels as like being God's army. We think of angels wearing helmets and having spears and like ready to fight battles for God. And that's not how God works, so that's not how God needs angels to be, right? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, it is interesting that it is an army, but also of messengers. Like, their their official their official title is as a messenger, um, but then they are used, this, this imagery of, like, an army and, and rank-and-file soldiers ready to carry out something, but there's not necessarily, there's no battles going on. I mean, there's like revelation, which we can get to later, but there, yeah, there's not really, there's not really any instances of them acting as like a military army. Um, Mm -hmm. They act as rulers and authorities in heaven. We see Ephesians 3.10 touches on that. Um, So they do, they do act as some sort of authorities. I don't know if we have to report to them. I don't know what they're in charge of in heaven, but they have some, they have something. They have something that, we don't essentially but later on we also see in revelation 1910 uh it makes it extremely clear that they are not to be worshipped and actually in that one of the angels i can't remember which one it was uh but uh tells to the author uh in his vision like no do not do not worship me stand up because he tries to bow down and prostrate himself and he's like stop like i'm 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 equal with you and Mm. uh so it is it is interesting that I guess in the grand scheme of of you know who we who we worship and who we pay our actual respects to like that and who we who we live to please literally like it, there is a very clear division because sometimes these also act like demigods like we would consider these to almost be like demigods of sort if we were like reading a different religion and reading some mythology that you know from a from a forgotten civilization but but then here there's a clear delineation between that that there is no there's no like secondary 
deity with them. They are they are something else. I, I saw I also added this in, but I, I saw in the catechism uh, they they note that Saint Augustine uh, officially uh, published published in one of his writings that uh, the word angel is the name of their office and not their nature. And that rather uh, they are they are spirits and they are purely spirits and that uh, but angel is what they do angel is their job. Um, I thought that was another another fun yeah like they they are they aren't angels like any more than I'm a receptionist you know and <laughs> <laughs> so they but you know they, they're spirits they're spirits first and foremost and yeah. so I, I it's it's interesting it's interesting the first. Um, the first time we see a heavenly spirit or a heavenly body come to earth is in actually a negative context. It's in Genesis 6. Um, this is where we see the sons of God uh, uh, seeing the daughters of men and mating with them. This is where God is starting to see the earth kind of go awry, the original creation kind of going awry. This is before the first flood. And in Genesis 6, I'll just read a couple of these, a uh, couple of these verses to give you some context. Now, I should preface this by saying there's a lot of different ways to understand what this "sons of God" word means, um, what this phrase means. It's commonly understood to be something angelic or something heavenly, something from heaven or something from God. It could mean a lot of different things, and we we see. Uh, you know, these angels being referred to, you know, these heavenly creatures being referred to as like giants in other places, or, um, you know, there's a lot of different incarnations of these things we no longer understand or no longer have. Um, now, now, Ariel, before you hop into Genesis 6, can I actually make one small correction? I We, sure. we can take this out. Uh uh, the the first time that we see heavenly bodies come down is in fact a negative context, but it's two chapters earlier, or three chapters earlier, at the end of Genesis three. Uh, God drives Adam out of the garden, and then at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. That's very true. Yes. Okay. So it's it's right before that, and it's very it's only one verse. It's very small, and yeah, it is nowhere it's nowhere near as juicy as what you're about to read. Let's like I <laughs> I would much rather dissect that. I just wanted to go on the record and say that the first time we see an angel come down is in fact earlier. No, you're absolutely right, and and the position that they're placed in is one that is like serving a specific purpose. It doesn't seem like they're given agency. Uh, in in Genesis three, there they're like told to do a specific thing, right? Um, but that's a very good point. And in six, uh, we see then it's it feels as though like they're kind of going into business for themselves, and this is part of the reason why God is so upset. So it's uh, now it came to pass. This is Genesis six verse one. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And, uh, and God immediately starts going, Oh boy, <laughs> I, I've created a monster. So it's good. No, not only that, that first iteration of, of heavenly beings in Genesis three have a specific purpose, but also that in Genesis six, when the heavenly beings are kind of loosed on earth, we see them start to kind of behave like humans. 
we we start to see them kind of do things that they maybe shouldn't be doing or that in hindsight god starts to look back and go god this is oh me this is such a bad idea (laughs) i'm so unhappy with how this is going so much so that god decides to start over hit the reset button yeah uh no this this uh this intermingling of heavenly bodies and earthly bodies uh, uh, brings about uh, a race of people known as the Nephilim, uh, which allegedly were these uh, giant people. Um, They were the heroes of old and warriors of renown, it says later. And, uh, And then it doesn't really say much after that. And from there, it goes into uh, God explaining to the people and God explaining to Noah that he's going to unleash the flood. Um, But there's a big gap in between what happens there. And we can put a pin in that or we can dive into that now. Well, I think there's a lot of question marks, but why don't we why don't why don't you go into it? Because I think that there's. There's a lot to be said for, like, what happened or what could have happened or where things go from there. Yes, that is that is a, a great point. So basically, uh, these these juicy little tidbits here, the 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 fact that angels came down from heaven and in, in the words of the Bible, went into the daughter daughters of man uh, and then bore sons, the Nephilim, uh, and then the uh the other part, you know, uh, in, in chapter 5, we see verse verse 24, Enoch walked with God, and then he was no more because God took him. This becomes a spinoff uh, in Second Temple literature known as the Book of Enoch, which isn't really the Book of Enoch. It's Enoch 1, or 1st Enoch, 2nd Enoch, and 3rd Enoch. But most people, when they say the Book of Enoch, they're talking about 1st Enoch. Um, and it is it is uh, this this semi-canonical iffy status uh it is it's currently recognized by the ethiopian orthodox church to be part of the canon but no other major church in the world or christian church in the world still recognizes it as canon um it is it is interesting because we can get to this later but we do see the new testament reference it almost directly implying that Mm. even if we don't read it today the Christians at the time of Jesus did read it and maybe even Jesus read it himself is the implication. And, but, but anyway, these two bits create the basis of the book of Enoch where it opens up with the children of God coming down and, uh, you know, having, having children with these, these, these wives. And, um, they, uh, the Nephilim now have these, 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 these supernatural powers and the supernatural knowledge where they they teach them these these evil arts basically is what they describe it uh among these are included sword making um spells and like sorcery root cutting which i i think is implied to be some sort of gardening or agriculture uh and and signs of the stars which i think is implied to be astrology and mm. and using the stars for some sort of divination and and it's it's these these uh these giants these nephilim that teach this to the people and it is because of their wickedness uh both the nephilim and also the angels that that did this that had had the children with the the, the daughters of man that god decides to unleash the flood on everybody 
and it is <laughs> it is wild if you have not read it i recommend it it's very short it's surprisingly it's a lot shorter than you think and it flies yeah yes it flies it, even if it's not that short you you want to read it trust me and um and the big thing from this though is uh later on in the second half of the the of first enoch it's it's when we see this this part where Enoch was taken up into heaven, where he was no more because God had taken him. And in this, he gets like the most insane, undescribable. He even uses the word undescribable, which is a cop out in my opinion. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> the most indescribable vision of heaven Bad that any living human being was ever able to see. And yeah, and. It's a lot, folks. It's a lot. We talk about... I've talked about Enoch on the show a few times and haven't gone into a ton of detail, but we're about to. And I think, it, it like, a few points to remember about Enoch is it's... Yes, it's not canonical in, in really most churches. This isn't like Maccabees or Manasseh or, or other, um, like, Tobit, like, things that have fallen into the canon for entire, um, you know, swaths of the uh of uh, of the christian church it's really like very very small groups that still think that enoch belongs in the canon and it's it's not like protestants even still view the apocrypha as like useful for reading but not necessarily canon in this is out there it's out there enough that you know most people try to avoid talking about it in, in mainstream christian circles they just don't want to address it because it's so wild and it's amazing i mean it's a really really cool read but it goes out there sometimes but you can see why because it's so engaging because it is so um it's so far-reaching in its scope you can see why people at the time when the new testament was written would have been really familiar with it because it's like very compelling reading it's like a good story to read even if necessarily you don't believe that every single word actually happened but it, it is i think worth reading because if the people that wrote the New Testament thought it was worth reading, then you should be reading it, even if necessarily you don't think that every single word is God-breathed. Yes, and I'll even say, uh, if you guys just want to flip to Jude when you get a chance, I mean, it's it's one chapter, it's so short. I mean, it takes five minutes to read. Uh, but Jude directly references it, um, like like word for word. I think I have it bookmarked on one of these. Um yeah, chapter 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 one verse fourteen. It was also about these that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, "See, the Lord is coming with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict everyone of all the deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners had spoken against him." And just as a super quick thing, Ariel, I don't know if you're familiar, but in the past few months, I have been getting super into the Bible Project podcast with Tim Mackey, um, who is in your town, I believe. Yes. And yes, I don't know if you've, I don't know if you've, yeah, familiar with him, but I love him. Yes, I love him. I think that I don't agree with him theologically on everything, but I think Tim Mackey's brilliant. Anybody who doesn't know anything that he's done should check him out. They make a lot of super useful and very helpful. Uh, youtube videos and their podcast goes a little more in depth and he's a great preacher too um okay. so check him out if you haven't yeah not necessarily endorsing him theologically but he from my understanding has a phd in the hebrew bible and so i mean you can't deny that this man understands it uh but he pointed out something in an episode i was listening to just the other day and i was really happy i just picked, picked this episode at random but he mentions that 
in Jude, when when Jude references Enoch, he does it like a like a word for word quotation, like in quotation marks, you know, uh, excerpt from it. He points out that uh, Tim Mackey points out that this is different how from other letters in the New Testament refer to or even how Jesus refers to other Second Temple literature. Uh, it's normally a quoted without attribution or they paraphrase it or they kind of put their own spin on it. Uh, but in this, it is it like he's lifting something from Enoch and putting it directly in this, mm. implying that there was a greater significance to that than just your average rabbinical literature that was being produced at the time. Um, I, I, I don't know. I think that's, I just think that's worth keeping in mind with Enoch in, in trying to figure out if you think it's worth reading. Um, I think yeah. it absolutely is. And, uh, most people who read it seem, seem to think that it is, but, uh, yeah, at the very least, if you consider it to be compelling fan fiction, then you should read it. But I think it's more than that. I think there's a lot more to it than that. And, and it will seem out there. It'll, it'll feel, you get mushroom flashbacks when you read it. Like you'll kind of... <laughs> It will expand your mind in a way that a lot of prophetic literature does not do uh, in canonical scripture. It's it's out there, but it's it's awesome. I mean, it's it's really cool, and and um, and it is something we mentioned Enoch in our first episode together about death because Enoch was spared death, like Elijah, and um, like the ones the believers that are alive at the time of the return of Christ, uh, those people who will also be spared death. Um, there are very few people who aren't guaranteed to at some point die and Enoch never did. Yeah. And, and so that's kind of why I think people, another reason why people don't really want to touch this book, because it does have dicey implications about that, that it's possible to go to heaven without dying. When Jesus says later in the new Testament, the only way to get to the, the father is through me. The only way to get through heaven is through me. Um, it also implies that, one can look upon the face of God, which Enoch kind of does. He doesn't fully uh, perceive and understand what he's looking at quite, but he is still gazing upon God directly. And and I don't know, that has implications that some people are uncomfortable with theologically, considering how the face of God is treated elsewhere in the Bible. Um, mm -hmm. I will say for as much time as I spent reading through this and like taking copious amounts of notes, I didn't spend any time reading why it's not considered canonical anymore. Do you know anything about that, Ariel? I don't actually. I, I imagine it's because they could just never verify where any of it came from. And because like a lot of things that aren't in canon that might, you know, have valuable information uh, because they contradict commonly believed and and um you know institutionally held doctrines and uh, you know that's that's a very cynical view i think of why we set the canon up but there's there are some cases where some someone goes hey uh why um you know why isn't this good oh well it says this one thing about this particular thing and in that way it contradicts you know these early uh christian councils and therefore we can't consider it to be part of the canon it, it, it has to be that there was this story of Enoch before Jesus's time. So the, the chronological aspect of it is not in, in any kind of contention, I don't think. Although the words that we have today might not be the exact same words or the understanding exactly that they knew. But the, the story as a whole was one that existed before Jesus. 
Um, it's not like some of the letters that wound up getting cut from the canonical New Testament because people found that they were written in 380 as opposed to like 70 or 80. Do you just want to dive in? Dive into the actual description of heaven? Yeah, yeah. Let's go, let's just go into okay. Enoch's Enoch's version of heaven. Yes, because as we mentioned, there's no real descriptions of heaven in in the no no satisfying descriptions of heaven that we find <laughs> in the New Testament. Yeah, no. Sta- I'll say that no satisfying. So instead, we get we get uh, a a overly satisfying. Too, it's too much. It's too much detail. A uh, picture of heaven from Enoch. Um, now, uh, one quick other other uh caveat that i will mention um with this is i kind of messed up and i found a translation of enoch that is not as true in terms of the chaptering and how it's sectioned up in the stories i accidentally found a much more americanized one where it is cut into larger chapters like just seven large chapters uh with verses in between similar to how we read the you know our english bible uh, it's not like that uh, from my understanding the actual original first Enoch it's many chapters and uh, and they're only like a few verses long um, yeah. so when I say chapter 5 chapter 6 chapter 7 I'm talking about the standard English version if you're following along at home uh, I don't ever think about people doing that do people do that anyway uh, if you're following along at home then the standard English version is, is the one um, but it, 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 the vision of heaven starts in chapter 5 everything leading up to chapter 5 is the story of these angels they, they have very confusing names I'm not going to try to say them going down to <laughs> earth and doing their thing and now after uh, Enoch was taken beginning in chapter 5 he sees first a wall of crystal outside of heaven which is surrounded by tongues of fire and unsurprisingly as we see in every instance where a human like witnesses an angel or god or heaven or anything he's terrified uh I, that's my favorite detail about these divine experiences that they're terrifying we think of them being we think of them being funny and or you know the lights hallmark angel like type thing uh but it's not it's it's terrifying in every single instance that it happens um I I I like the idea there's a wall around heaven. I'm confused why there's a there's a point for that. But uh you know maybe maybe that does support the notion that some people don't get into heaven, but it's 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 just interesting. Um but I Enoch enters heaven basically by going into the tongues of fire. I can't describe that any better because that's just what it says. Uh, and then he's led to a crystal house with crystal walls and crystal floors. Um, he describes the ceilings of the house like the path of the stars and the lightnings, and between them were fiery cherubim, and their heaven was water. The water, I'm guessing, being the primordial sea idea of the, the chaotic nothingness outside of Earth, and that's what he's describing here. But again... I can't give any better description than what is there. And we just got to live with that. There's so much fire. The walls are surrounded by fire and it's described with having portals of fire. And the inside is both hot as fire, but then also cold as ice. And so right now, heaven is a very confusing place right off the bat. Um, Mm. This is not the type of heaven that I feel like we often picture. And I kind of wonder if we should start picturing it more. I think that it speaks to heaven being this intangible thing that while we try and try and try to come up with ideas, physical ideas of what it might be like, 
our human understanding of physicality, of tactile feelings, and of things that we can grasp fail in understanding something that is outside of this world. Our mind is locked in this box of, of what something can and can't be. And how confusing Enoch is in describing heaven, it pencils, right? It makes sense why we would see uh, wait, I don't understand. It's hot and it's cold. It's on fire, but also it's crystal. All of these things can't can't possibly be occurring at the same time. Well, they are, and they do, because they're not. It's not physical uh, material that we know of. It's not the sort of thing that we're familiar with. I actually did not pick that up at all, and I'm actually glad I didn't think about that. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I yeah. Because it's almost like if people describe the you know the the analogy of trying to describe a new color or trying to imagine a new color is just something that we just can't do that we we like we physically cannot wrap our minds around it just like how we can't think of some place that is both hot as fire and cold as ice and you know glorious but also terrifying and um it's yeah it's it's impossible to describe there is there is no there's no proper words that can actually paint the picture of what he's supposedly seeing here. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, confusingly, he then falls on his face while he's like in this room and then beholds another vision. So we're like doing inception stuff now. Uh, and then there's a second house also made out of crystal, but bigger than the former. Uh, and then there's another portal and it's again, fire. Um, and then this is where we get this cop out where he goes, and in every respect, it's so excelled in splendor and magnificence and extent that I cannot describe to you its splendor and its extent. <laughs> and so he just he's just like, by the way, it, it's beautiful, but I'm not even going to just like, don't I'm not going to bother. I'm not going to bother. <laughs> and, um, you know, I just I love that. I love I'd like to think that maybe he was writing this and then someone was staying next to him and he's like, well, describe it. Like, you know, give it give me a better picture. And he's like, I'm not I'm not going to bother with you. Like, I'm not, I you wouldn't get it. You wouldn't get it. Just, you know, you'll, you'll get to it eventually. Don't worry. You know, get away for part two. <laughs> um, but, you know, and then this is kind of described to essentially be the throne room of God, which is. In the Old Testament, I feel how we most see heaven described, not the physical heavens, because that's another confusing thing when we talk about heaven in the Bible. If you see the word heavens and they're talking about the heavens above, they're probably talking about the sky, which is mm -hmm. I hate that they're the same word. I, you know, that's just yeah. how they did it back then. That's how they understood the world to be. But they, yeah, confusingly, sometimes they were talking about the heavens. They're actually just talking about the planets and the stars. But then elsewhere in the Old Testament, I know you marked down a lot of examples, but it's, it, meant, it talks about heaven as like God's throne room, His, the place where yeah. he just is and he's watching everything happen. And it's not a place for humans. It's just his place. Yeah, my notes as far as uh, this idea of God ruling from afar, not to jump out at Enoch because we're going to get back. No, in. please. We've these go hand in hand. These go Enoch. hand in hand. Uh, Psalm, Psalm 103, verse 19, uh, 1 Kings 8, 12 and 13, and Isaiah 6, uh, verse 1. We have this idea of God kind of watching from his house and ruling from afar. This is God in the throne room. Um, that God is like sitting on his heavenly, uh, sitting in his heavenly palace and, and sort of like gazing out on, on his creation. And 
we see uh, it, Enoch's use of there being a house and then there being another house kind of goes along with what Jesus said in John when he was talking in the in the upper room discourse when he said there's many rooms in you know in my father's kingdom there's many mansions there's many rooms there's different places and there are sort of like levels of excellency in heaven if we're considering heaven to be like a kingdom there is a castle and there's like an even greater castle like the 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 princes are in one castle and the king is in another so it's making sense with how a lot of people perceived heaven to be. Oh yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's describing this. Yeah. It's describing this throne room, this, this watchtower, this, this headquarters, you know, central, central place. Um, the, the throne is also made of crystal. Uh, the, the wheels that he describes are as the shining sun. And then the cherubim are also present. The cherubim are the, uh, if I am correct, the, the four headed angels, uh, one with an ox, one with a, I don't remember the rest of them, but, uh, but you see, you see them at the beginning of Ezekiel. Um, and my favorite part about this, I mean, it says later on that I guess, you know, I will correct myself. Enoch doesn't directly see God. Uh, cause he even says none of the angels could even like enter and behold his face. Um, and no flesh could behold him. So I guess he's just describing that he was, you know, able to like peripherally see God, but you just can't look directly at him. Um, there's also more flaming fire around God, and there's fire in front of him, uh, which keeping people from even like approaching him, which is kind of interesting. This concept of there being a separation fire that literally yeah. no one can pass through to even reach God. And so, you know, no matter, no matter, even if you got all the way to God's throne room, you still could not even reach God because then there's just this wall of fire that you can't pass through. Um, it's a very Wizard of Oz kind of vibe, I think. Oh, extremely. No, this is very man behind the curtain. I mean, you know, you, you're not supposed to look at him. They, you, know, you can't actually get to him. It's yeah. Um, but my favorite part about this, and I mentioned in, I think, one of the first episodes I did with you about Joseph. Uh, I I hate that we sometimes refer to God as he, or even I sometimes don't like referring to God as she or they. And I like referring to God as it. It like the idea of God, the, the concept of God, the thing that is God. And here, Enoch refers to God as the great glory. And calling God the great glory is by far my favorite term of address so far it it picks it it like it captures i think the essence of god far better than the father ever does yeah. you know no, i'm sorry no disrespect to every theologian ever but uh yeah. this, is, <laughs> this is better good luck undoing uh, good luck undoing thousands of years of programming that look we've... i can fix it okay the church <laughs> i can fix him <laughs> Well, it's, it's hard because even in scripture, we have cases where there's this idea of like God's hands. And so it's it's really hard for us not to imagine God as having uh, parts like a human does. But any description that we have of like God's body parts, I think are obviously supposed to be metaphorical. They're obviously supposed to be like a, a description of the force of God and the power of God rather than the actual... Uh, fingers of god yes yeah when it says um i think in certain parts of the old testament it refers to scripture being written by the finger of god 
the Israelites at no point believed that there was a literal finger of God coming down and like etching these things down. That would be terrifying. You know, what's what's that boss from like the Smash Brothers game? The the gloved hand that you fight. Yeah, like that. You know, they would like that wasn't happening. That wasn't that they did not believe that. Uh, and and I guess if I had one big qualm with the, the Christianity that I grew up with and or the Christianity that I like live around today, it's maybe that literalism that that the it's 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 a little uncreative sometimes. I, and, and, you know, I'm, apologies if you did, you know, interpret that literally. Uh, yeah, I mean, we all sang "He's Got the Whole World in His Hands" when we were younger, so exactly. I think we all know the <laughs> we all know the idea. Exactly. But yeah, this is this is a. Uh, I mean, this is what we basically see as being the throne room of God, and how it's described in the Old Testament. With I mean, with in regards to First Enoch. After that, though, he goes to a different part, which is unclear if it's part of heaven or not. It's described as being a place of darkness is pretty much it. Um, but before, actually, one other note besides from that, it does say at the very beginning of chapter six, the standard English version, that uh, the angels describe this disguise themselves as like human men, uh, which has also the implication that maybe angels are able to come down, not in the form of angels to us. And, uh, you know, I don't, again, I don't know if we see that elsewhere in scriptures besides this, but it's, it's a fun thought. It's a fun thought. The, the mm. Christian movie trope that we see so often of the mysterious benevolent character that shows up at just the right time. Um, you know, the, the, that type of thing is what I'm picturing. Um, but then he sees a place of darkness where he sees a river of fire, which is uh, flowing like water and discharging itself into a great sea. It's unclear if they also mean a sea of fire. Uh, he describes seeing literal pillars of heaven, like actual, just like actual pillars of heaven that are holding them up made out of different stones. Um, my, my friend back home and I actually went through these. She's very into like the crystals and rocks thing of the new age beliefs. I love her to death and she knows this and I don't believe in it, but I asked, I got her expertise the, to ask what these stones mean. The results were mostly inconclusive. I'll just say that there, I mean, <laughs> surprise, surprise. There's no unified system of what these stones actually mean. And if there is, it wasn't around 3000 years ago or whatever, 2,500 years ago when this was being written. Um, but, uh, still thank you to my friend in case she listens to this. Thank you for your help. That was very, that was very fun going through those with you. Um, but it's, it's literal pillars that are holding up heaven. And so it's almost unclear if this is like an, like a literal underbelly, like the basement of heaven that we're in. It's, it's not clear where these pillars are standing up from and what they're mm -hmm. holding up. It's all, it's all very cryptic i don't know yeah. do you do you see anything with this well i think that um part of what you were talking about in the confusion between heavens and heaven is part of why we as humans like have a difficult time imagining heaven as being any other place but up because we think we look up into the the unknown we look up into things that we can't fully grasp or understand and therefore, like, they're higher than me, they're greater than me, heaven must be up from here. So whether or not this is supposed to be, like, a physical manifestation of uh, the kingdom of heaven on scaffolding, uh, you know, we, we hear in Revelation that the kingdom of heaven comes down to earth, 
that the, the, the full manifestation of God's ideal is that the kingdom of heaven then is part of the earthly creation and, and all is sort of made one. But it's, uh, it is an interesting image that heaven is propped up on these gemstones. Heaven is propped up on these giant pillars of super precious material. And it, I mean, it describes the pillars as just going down into a, a like dark abyss. So I mean, Enoch doesn't really see the bottom of where it goes. And and so I mean, with that 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 concept of you know heaven coming to earth, you know, at the at the day of the second coming. Um, I almost wonder if this is like just the temporary holding spot of heaven, just like parked upon these hiller, these pillars, waiting mm-hmm. for the big day when it comes back down. Um, there's also, and I'll, I'll see how you think about this, but he describes seeing beyond the abyss somewhere. Again, we don't know what that means. You know, on the other side, like he's looking over a chasm. I don't know, but he sees a place described as a waste and a horrible place, and the <laughs> angel describes it as the end of heaven and earth and it was a prison for the stars and the host of heaven the stars there's there's apparently imprisoned stars because there were some stars when god was making you know the world was making creation at the beginning of genesis and he creates the stars apparently some stars did not come forward and they did not actually light up the way they were supposed to and god imprisoned them i don't know what that means I don't know what that means, um, but they are rolled over the fire uh, because they transgress the commandment of the Lord. So there's there if, if you want to think about that, there's stars being punished uh, in this in this thing. Um, and then also it is the the prison of the the angels that or it will be the prison of the angels this is a, a, you know, a, a thing to come of the of uh, who went down to earth and had children with these these women. Uh, and they have to wait there until the judgment day, which indicates that they will be judged till they are made an end of, quote unquote. Um, mm. It's all very unclear what they mean. And the one, I mean, the one last thing you can see it in the notes in all caps. I mean, just I, I, I need to mention it is that at the very end of that, it says that the women also of the angels who went astray shall become sirens and then there's no elaboration and i don't know if they mean <laughs> the women that slept with the angels like the, the the earthly women slept with the angels and became sirens or if they were also like female angels that acted up uh, i don't know if the the female angels were lesbians and they were also like having sex with the the earthly women or the earthly men i don't know i don't know it's not <laughs> there's nothing else on it it doesn't say what a siren is it doesn't there's n- this like this ruined me for like four hours <laughs> one night i blew through this whole thing and i i couldn't stop reading it i don't know i'm talking too much you talk about heaven no no it's fine <laughs> it is it's it's little details like this that i think make enoch so fascinating uh the thing that caught me the most about this description of this place at you know at the end of heaven or this sort of uh, pit of nothingness or the fires that are on the outside of heaven are um, the implication. This is the implication that heaven and hell are places in relation to one another. Um, thanks to Dante, a lot of people have this idea that hell is like below us. Hell is down where death goes and heaven is up where good goes, right? Good goes up and bad goes down or something. I'm not sure 
where necessarily other than Dante where we get this notion. But in Enoch's description of the heavens or of this otherworldly realm, heaven and hell are near one another. And it also implies in a way that there is some sort of uh, transportation between these two places, that it is not a hard cutoff between them, that there has been movement between these two areas, and that maybe perhaps one is not locked into one place or the other for eternity. Now, that, of course, uh, Revelation has something to say about that, too, and and I don't think it's any secret how I feel about the idea of hell. Um, but I, I think that having those two, these two places, the bad and the good, being separate but not totally distinct within the realm of the other world is very cool to me, and it sets up these ideas that... that you know, have gotten, have, they've grown more and more crazy over the years of like heavenly battles and, and armies of demons and armies of angels fighting each other. And, you know, the little bits and pieces that we get from the prophets and from Revelation uh, playing out in people's extreme imaginations. Um, you can see the, 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 the seeds of that being planted here. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the only last vision of note that I really saw, because um, I mean, it just keeps talking about these like abys- abysmal places uh, that are like the outside of heaven. They're all described to be very similar, uh, you know, lots of fire. But again, there's fire in the throne room of God. So it's unclear if fire is a good thing or a bad thing. We don't know. Jury's out on fire. But um, <laughs> the, the, final, the final thing that I wanted to bring up is then, because another thing that I remember being like a sore subject or a touchy subject within my church growing up, not because it was bad or inappropriate or anything, but because there was no clear answer and any answer, like any clear answer that you did try to give uh, sort of had its own implications that no one really wanted to fully agree with. And the idea is like what some people refer to as Abraham's bosom or, or even, or even like the idea of like a purgatory, they're different, but sim- somewhat similar this idea that there is of some place aside from heaven or hell that could be a place that you're there forever. It's not good. It's not bad, but that you, you know, you weren't a good enough person. So you're there forever. I don't think it exists for that. But then the other interpretation, <laughs> which we almost kind of see here, and I can get your take on it is the idea of a waiting room. The idea yeah. that when you die, your soul your, it is maybe still conscious and uh, or maybe not but it is stored in these hollows hollow places in a mountain it's described there's four different ones um it's the souls of the children of men and then they are says quote these places have been made to receive them till the day of their judgment until their appointed period um there's there's kind of four different places it describes they all are essentially the same it's it was unclear how they're dividing the people up but there's one person of notes that is talked about, and it's one single man who is kind of outside of these hollow mans, and he is making suits, not tailoring clothes, but he is trying, <laughs> he is pleading a case. He's making a lawsuit to God, uh, uh, try, uh, you know, it, making a case against um, his, his killer, and it's, it's Abel. 
It is Abel pleading his case to God and trying to, you know, essentially create this lawsuit against Cain uh, until, quote, his seed is destroyed from the earth and his seed is annihilated from amongst the seed of men, which is uncomfortable to just say. But I, I just think it's very interesting. I mean, this is... This is this was our first death, if I'm not mistaken, right? This is the first mm-hmm. death in the Bible, and he gets a special place. And um, again, I also I think it's very interesting that the Bible makes the first death a murder. I think that's telling. But um, and he gets to he gets to be apart from this group. You know, I guess maybe God had some sympathy for his situation, um, but no one else seems to be able to leave that. And but he's just he's just there pleading his case continually and i guess he's just been doing this since since he was murdered and it, it sounds like he will be doing this either until <laughs> quote unquote the the seed is annihilated which again i don't like that that's uncomfortable that's uncomfortable to say and uh but or the judgment day comes along and he just gets to go to heaven anyway but so i mean this this almost seems to directly imply a waiting room and I don't, it doesn't, it's not clear if we're conscious during this or not. Yeah, it, it in one way lines up with this idea of, of purgatory, but I think that it, it lines more, uh, it, it's more in line with the older Old Testament Jewish understanding of death being like you go somewhere and it's dark. And uh, until the time of judgment and until all are raised from the dead, and this is a belief that a, a lot of Christians have, that dead people are dead, um, that they may be with the Lord, they may not be, but ultimately, like, your eternal soul is waiting until all are judged, and then all will be, you know, raised to heaven to be with God or will be sent to uh, to hell or be annihilated permanently. But it is odd to think of this, like, holding place like this swiss bank of souls that uh that it it is permanently between the powers of good and evil and uh, it's just kind of stored there forever until finally you know uh, until the one day when it's all cashed out Uh, it's it's interesting but it does line up at least in our first conversation when we were talking about death and how a lot of the old testament perceived death to just be the end uh or going to darkness um, even this notion of hell early on, Sheol, or um, or the perception of death being sort of darkness or like the the garbage pit, isn't necessarily like you're getting poked by uh, a pitchfork for eternity, <laughs> but that it's just kind of this place where everything waits until it gets raised again. <laughs> the image of it is so evocative, but it's impossible to imagine. Right, like I can think of it and know that I'm thinking of it wrong. Yeah, and and I mean the absolute worst part of it all, really, is that that's where the vision ends. Essentially, I mean, there's a few <laughs> small other descriptions about just small details that I'm not really gonna di- dive into here. But that's pretty much where it ends. And the rest yeah. of First Enoch is a compilation of other different other different stories. Um, I didn't read them, sorry, but uh, they they don't they don't really have this same juice that we were looking for with this and when people talk about first enoch they are primarily talking about this section where we we learn about the watchers which are the angels that came down we see enoch's vision second enoch is from my understanding just a retelling of first enoch but in a different point of view um if that interests you by all means read it 
third Enoch super fast is incredibly disputed and I don't have any notes on it up here but uh, it's incredibly shaky it's very short but essentially it describes this vision that a rabbi has of Enoch and he go you know this this is like a rabbi's almost kind of own vision of heaven but not quite to the same extent and um, and but he he essentially sees this image of Enoch becoming an angel an angel named metaton uh which you know i know is another big new agey concept that some people like to talk about metaton's cube he apparently has this this cube that holds all information and all knowledge of the world and he almost gets elevated and again this is the uncomfortable part this is the uncomfortable part i think why most people don't like it he almost becomes a second god hmm. with the knowledge that is described of being bestowed upon him and the status that he then holds after this promotion, if you, you know, what have you, he's now above all the angels. He has essentially the same knowledge as God. He almost, it makes him sound like a second God. And, <laughs> and yeah, and read it, read it, please. It's, yeah. it's super short, but you know, we, we won't dive into that right now. Um, I, I think, I think first Enoch is mostly what we were after for the purposes of our discussion. Um, but you know, I still, I still very much encourage all of you to check it out. It's, it's insane. It's fun. <laughs> it's fun. It's fun. Uh, Met Metatron is the, is a pervasive enough cultural figure that, um, he's actually, uh, referenced in the Kevin Smith movie Dogma and, uh, his character is played by Alan Rickman and, uh, it is, so it's a commonly held Jewish belief in, in sort of ancient Judaism, but it's not something that Christians necessarily think of, like, this is part of the canon, right? It, it comes from Enoch, so obviously it's not part of the canon, but even that sort of, like, extra canonical uh, literature and beliefs that the church has held for thousands or hundreds of years, it doesn't really even fall into that, though it is fascinating. And it's like, this is the idea of the highest of high angels, like that is how important Enoch was elevated in the belief system, you know, in those people's minds that Enoch was that important. So important that like uh, when Jesus was dying on the cross and he called out Eloi, Eloi, that they thought he was calling to uh, e um, Elijah, that that's how important Elijah was to the Jews at that time. That's just how important that Enoch was to these people. And that's why, Enoch was referred to in the New Testament. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say just straight up, if you are down, let's do one more episode and let's talk about New Testament heaven. Yes. Because I think that there's there's enough to chew on there and I've got a lot of passages that I pulled and I really don't want to rush through them. Yeah. Can I leave us off with one passage that leads perfectly into that? It's one more, one more on angels that I wanted to touch on and, and it relates to this kind of third Enoch uh, situation. Absolutely. But I mentioned the last episode, I truly do hope to be an angel one day, the cool spinning, uh, you know, wheel eye ones that carry the throne of God. That's, that's my you know, ideal job. But uh, there, it's a spicy thing in a lot of Protestantism or really Christianity in general is a lot of people believe that you do not become an angel when you die. Angels were made separately at the beginning and they are not, you know, humans that died and go into heaven. Unless you interpret Third Enoch to be true, 
that Enoch is taken up and made into the, the angel Metatron. Or some other people will also interpret Elijah uh, to become an angel and his and his taken up to heaven. Um, but one thing that I found, and this will lead into our New Testament uh, heaven discussion, is Luke 20, verse 34. Jesus said to them, those who belong to this age marry and are given in marriage. This is talking about the question of whether or not people are married in heaven. Uh, but those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and in the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Indeed, they cannot die anymore because they are like angels and are children of God being children of the resurrection. And the fact that the dead are raised, Moses himself showed in the story about the bush, where he speaks of the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is God, not of the dead, but of the living. For to him, all of them are alive. The phrase that sticks out, the phrase that sticks out to me there is children of God. Uh, that brings us right back to where we started in this conversation about the children of God. And what does it mean to be the children of God? And why have we understood children of God to be angels for so long? Uh, or the, the, um, the sons of God? Uh, I, there's a lot to talk about yes. with how our perception of heaven changes in the New Testament. Um, my translation of Enoch comes from the Ethiopian Bible, the Ethiopian Protestant Church's Bible. And in Enoch 48 in that, there's a prophecy that says a son of man that brings heavenly hope and light uh, to earthly nations will usher in a new time and a fundamental change. This is not a direct quote, but will will change fundamentally the uh, the kingdoms of earth and the kingdoms of heaven. And so we see this pivot point towards the coming of Christ, towards Jesus changing the game and that's really what what i think we should talk about in the next episode absolutely because if anything that might be that might be the most valuable part of this and if i can be so bold that might actually be the most valuable part of this entire discussion and this entire this trip of through devon uh, through death and into the old testament and first enoch heaven and then now on to what what you know what we hope to actually see happen and and what we what we eagerly await for and so ariel i'm excited to talk about this with you i have been excited for me every too. single episode of this <laughs> me too yes thank you again thank you again so much for having me on and for talking yeah. about the bible with me again you are a fantastic friend and i value you deeply and i'm very happy that god has led us to meet each other Absolutely. I, I've enjoyed every one of our conversations, and I hope we have many, many more, but I'm especially, I think, looking forward to this next conversation about heaven, because uh, knowing what we know now about how we perceive and understand death, uh, what uh, the Old Testament writers uh, or people at that time understood to be heaven and how they imagined that, and knowing that they knew that a change was coming— uh, it, it can open our minds to all kinds of very cool possibilities. So thank you for joining me, and uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, I don't plug the Patreon very often, but I know this is going to be a free feed episode, so I'm just going to mention uh, if you are at all interested in listening to any of the back bonus episodes, 
They're available on patreon.com slash transregretsnoopy. Um, subscriptions are $5 a month. You get two bonus episodes and access to our uh, patron Discord, which has fun weekly events and occasional other things if we get squirrely and decide to do something fun. So uh, thanks, everybody. This week's poem is The Angel by William Blake. I dreamt a dream. What can it mean? And that I was a maiden queen, guarded by an angel mild, wiltless woe was ne'er beguiled. And I wept both night and day, and he wiped my tears away. And I wept both day and night, and hid from him my heart's delight. So he took his wings and fled, then the morn blushed rosy red. I dried my tears and armed my fears with 10,000 shields and spears. Soon my angel came again. I was armed, he came in vain. For the time of youth was fled and gray hairs were on my head. Thanks everybody. Through her 